9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I am in New York City. Uh, and we are joined today from all over the United States. First of all, we have Corey Shockey back in the cow town from which she sprang, <laughs> she describes it, in California. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. Uh, and uh, from Washington, D.C., we've got both Rosa Brooks, fresh off the Bill Maher show. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. Um, I, the reports, by the way, I have not seen your performance on the Bill Maher show, but the reports are that you were funny. Um, I try. If, if I can't be depressing, I try to be funny. And sometimes I try to be both. Actually, yeah. you're almost always both. <laughs> well, you know, try, try, try either one here. We'll take, we'll take both. Also in Washington, D.C., of course, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. And a new guest and a friend, Ricardo Hausman, director of the Growth Lab at Harvard, Senate, Harvard Center for International Development and the Rafiq Hariri, professor of the practice of international political economy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hi, Ricardo. How are you? Great to be with you. Uh, one of the reasons that Ricardo is here is that he sent me an email and he mentioned um, uh, about the, the, the way that this epidemic is now slamming the developing world. And they've done some work at it at the Growth Lab. And, and you know, I was looking at the rankings um, uh, of the countries that are most heavily affected by this right now. And whereas there was a period in the life of this virus, despite the allegation that it started in China, where it was seen as something that was affecting the U.S. and Europe, primarily developed countries. Now, 11 out of the 20 top uh, countries are developing economies. I think it's growing faster in Latin America than anywhere else, uh, and it seems like a crisis is brewing. And Ricardo, I was just—I thought the best place to to start would be to talk to you about what your perception of of that is and and how it looks to you. Well, I think that in general it looks um, very very serious. Uh, this is uh, the biggest economic um, uh, recession in our lifetime. Uh, for most of these countries. I'm currently working on 12 of them, uh, trying to help them think through you know, how to respond. Um, uh, the crisis has like two legs. One leg is the, is the epidemiological one, that you know, uh, what do you do about the disease and you, you declare a lockdown and if you do a lockdown, uh, do you send people checks so that they can stay home and, and buy groceries and not have to leave their home or not? And, and then how would you finance that, et cetera? And that's, that's one set of issues. Uh, and there I must report 
that, um, you know, countries have been differentially, uh, very differentially successful in dealing with these, with, with, with the pandemic. So, for example, we have enormous successes in countries like Belize, Costa Rica, Uruguay, Jordan, uh, uh, Albania, Namibia. Uh, and then you have other countries uh, like Chile, like Peru, uh, like Mexico, uh, like Colombia. That don't, 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 don't forget the Brazilians. They'll feel left out. No, no. I, I, <laughs> you'll see why I didn't mention Brazil, because they don't belong to this group. Right. These are countries, you know, probably except Mexico, that were acted very quickly, very early on, were very much on top of things. But in spite of telling everybody to stay home, um, they, uh, they haven't been able to control the pandemic. And they are seeing exponential growth of cases and deaths and so on, in spite of the fact that people have been locked up for two and a half months. Uh, and now they're, you know, between a rock and a hard place because if they open up, you know, they already are in exponential growth. So where's this thing going to go? So, so differentially there. So, that, so the pandemic is like kind of one issue. One issue. The other one is, is assume for a second that your country, uh, for some odd genetic or environmental reason, was completely immune <clears throat> to, to COVID-19. Imagine that scenario. How bad could it be for you? Well, it turns out that it could be dramatically bad because um, it, it impacts everybody else in the world and, and that impacts back on you. So, for example, uh, commodity prices are down, uh, especially oil and, and minerals. So if you happen to be an oil exporter, it's a huge shock. Tourism is shut down because air travel is shut down. So if you had, you know, if tourism was an important part of your economy, if you were in somehow a, a hub in, in international travel, say like Panama, uh, you know, shut down. Um, and if you're a country that lives off of remittances, say like, you know, El Salvador or Honduras get about 20% of their GDP from remittances, that's down 40% in the last couple of months. So uh, this represents a humongous shock to the economy, a humongous recession uh, that leaves them with very little money at a time when they would have to be writing checks for people to stay home or to buy testing equipment or you know, PPEs or, or, or whatever else. So so this constitutes a really, 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 uh, you know, momentous historic crisis. For take, I mean, take Belize, super successful controlling the pandemic, but shut out of tourism, which represents forty percent of their economy. So that's the picture. Well, it's a it's pretty pretty serious picture, and and it looks like it's going to be the case for a long, long time, Ed. We've just seen a report from economists in the U.S. that the United States entered a recession in February. So uh, that means that the whole period of expansion following the end of the last financial crisis, uh, the last month of that was in January, and we are now into something entirely new. But what Ricardo describes 
um, is a kind of shock to the emerging world, uh, which could be doubly difficult because, you know, in, 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 in past times, we were relying on a lot of the emerging world to help pull us out of this. Carter didn't talk about China, but China's clearly going to suffer from this. It's not going to pull us out of it. In fact, as we've talked about before, the stars of the emerging world for the past 20 years were the BRICS. And if you look at Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, you can throw in South Africa if you want to. They've all had a really, really rough time with this. Yes, and um, it's going to get rougher. Um, I mean, as, as Ricardo said, you divide it into two. I mean, China might well be past. It might well be past the epidemiological phase of it, at least for the time being. But it's going to suffer um, just as much as any other emerging market economy because of the contraction in global demand, but also because of the um, uh, the decline of. Um, uh, the, the global supply chain, which is principally directed at China. Um, I think that the really interesting thing here is, is, is watching Brazil. As Ricardo mentioned, Brazil is sort of an outlier, but it's a giant outlier um, uh, because it's got a, a leadership that's um, essentially in denial about um, the virus. Much like the United States, there are plenty of people at the provincial or the local level and in civil society and in medicine who are taking it very seriously. But when the head um, of your government and the, 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 the person directing the federal system um, is in denial, it's very, very diff difficult to get a coherent strategy going. Um, so we're seeing this in, in, in countries like Brazil. India has been more responsible, but you know, India cannot it just not, it's just not set up to send $1,200 checks or unemployment insurance to people. It's an informal economy dependent uh, to a great extent on migrant labor. Um, and therefore, it, it can't afford the lockdown, that we, the kind of lockdown we've had in America and Europe. Um, the other outlier here, and I think it's you know, a Western Hemisphere story first and foremost, is the United States which is lifting its lockdown very, very quickly. Social distancing is collapsing really across the board in the United States at a time when um, most of the states that are making those relaxations are, are seeing an increase in their infection rate. Um, New York and New Jersey are seeing a decrease, um, but most of the rest of America, including very hot states like Arizona, are seeing a very sharp uptick in infections. Um, so uh, the model, once again, you know, that might be setting the tone for the Western Hemisphere, the United States, is failing. Um, it's, it's showing no ability to, to stick to the discipline required um, uh, for, for the long fight against this pandemic. And the major countries in this region, um, other than the United States, such as Brazil and Mexico, um, are also failing for different reasons. So the Western Hemisphere is a particular point of focus. Yeah, so before I circle back to Ricardo, I'd like to go quickly to, to, to Corey and, and Rosa. And, and, and I guess the question I've got for both of you is, is as you, you know, process this information with the geopolitical calculators in your head, what does it tell you about the next 12, 18 months? I mean, you know, 
seems to cover a range of things. One, a lot of governments aren't going to be able to afford their basic necessities. Two, the, you know, there's big financial crisis coming, but that can have consequences. Uh, what worries you about this, Corey? And, and, and do you think the United States and our allies, who typically have stepped up to help in these situations, are going to be in any position to do so? Well, we're absolutely in a position to do so. We're prosperous enough countries um, that we could be flowing an enormous amount of aid to countries whose healthcare systems, whose public health infrastructure isn't robust enough for the tsunami that's about to hit them. We're not doing nearly enough of that. And it's not just a a beautiful human thing to do to alleviate suffering, but it's also self-interested. If you are worried about desperate people trying to flee where they are trapped without healthcare um, and, and refugees uh, and the complications that those will bring for all of us managing the pandemic, you need to care about where it's occurring um, and help take care of people where it's occurring. So no, I don't think we're doing nearly enough Another complication that I would add to Ricardo and Ed's very useful education for us all is that uh, the, the world's, the global economy has been um, riding Chinese growth rates for a while. And China is also the world's largest lender in part through the Belt and Road Initiative projects. And I saw yesterday that China has announced that it's going to consider debt forgiveness for 77 different countries. So either this is a brilliant PR stunt by the Chinese that they don't intend to follow up, uh, in which case the debt crisis for countries that are the recipients of those projects, those projects aren't going to be able to reach the economic return rates that they were predicated on, so there, it will exacerbate debt crises. Or if the Chinese are able, as they have in many previous instances, to provide that kind of debt forgiveness, um, as they seem to be pledging at the G20, that's going to be an enormous drag on the Chinese economy, which will substantially inhibit their ability to be a contributory uh, engine to global recovery. So, Rosa, same question before I go back to Ricardo. As you look at this through the geopolitical lens, you know what are the 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 alarms that go off when you you sort of see this kind of crisis, particularly in this hemisphere? I, I think expect turbulence uh, is is what we, that needs to be sort of our, our motto. Um, we can, as Corey said, there are things we could be doing to try to reduce the turbulence. It's certainly unlikely in the next, uh, what is it, what is it between now and January? Um, uh, the next six months, eight months, that that's going to happen. I can't see this administration uh, doing any of the things that Corey just suggested. Um, and, and we don't know what the outcome of the November election will be. Um, if Trump remains in office, I think the U.S. will, will continue to be, at best, sort of AWOL and at worst, act, actively sowing additional turbulence and discord. But, but I do think 
you know, what, what, what sticks out to me as a, not as a medical person, not as an epidemiologist, not as an economist, is, is how much we just do not understand about uh, either the likely path of this pandemic or its likely impact. I mean, one of the things that, that we have already seen is that there have been countries and regions within countries where the impact of COVID-19 has just been devastating um, in terms of uh, per capita death rates, uh, serious illnesses, et cetera. There have been regions where the economic impact has been devastating. Uh, there have been other places where the death toll for reasons that we don't really understand has been much, much, much less severe. Uh, and similarly, where the economic impact is much less severe. I don't, I certainly don't feel like I have a really good handle on which places are going to experience most turmoil. Some of my early predictions um, have already been being proved wrong. Um, and I suspect that there are just going to be a lot of surprises. I mean, that's why, you know, I, I feel like if I were the pilot of this, you know, airplane planet Earth, I would be saying, do up your seatbelts because we don't quite know what we're about to be going through. And, and, and I, I, I think that we could, we, could see, we could see anything from, you know, massive civil unrest in multiple parts of the Earth leading to refugee flows, not only because of direct issues having to do with access to healthcare economics, but because of uh, political social turbulence. I, I think it's probably not a stretch at all to say that the recent uh, political turmoil in the United States is, is in part um, not due to, but certainly accelerated by the economic and health fears uh, and, and impact that we've been experiencing already. So I think we're going to see that in, in other places as well. Uh, and I, and I, as I said, I don't, I don't know that, I certainly don't think I have the ability to predict exactly where and when, what kinds of turmoil, but I think we're going to see, at least for the next year, just, just a lot of unpredictable turbulence. So, Ricardo, having listened to all of this, and fortunately we live in the era of Zoom, so I not only am listening, but I'm able to observe your face as you're listening, I, I sense you have some reactions to some of this, so I, I, you know, I, I would offer you the opportunity to respond to these various things, in the and in, in all sort of perhaps in the general direction of answering the question, um, you know, of, I'll, I'll frame this in 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 a, a tradition with which I'm familiar, you know, how is this crisis different from all other crises? <laughs> Very good. Um, <clears throat> So I, I would say um, this is a, a combination of crises we have seen and crises we haven't seen. Uh, so the traditional thing is that you get a, you know, you're a developing country, you get an external shock, your commodity prices go down, or, you know, your access to foreign exchange deteriorates for one reason or another. So you call in the IMF. And they're going to ask you to do some changes in exchange for some loans. And if things go out well, you know, it, it, it all turns for, uh, for the better. I'm going to say something about, about the IMF in, in, uh, in, in the second part of my answer, but in, which is a major, major issue in the context in which, um, in, in, you know, there is no... U.S. leadership of the G7, 
uh, there is, uh, we don't know anymore if it's a G7 or if uh, uh, Putin will appear, make a cameo appearance there or whatever. So uh, there is um, there's, um, a, a problem of, of global leadership. But I want to say at, at the national level, you, in addition to this old-fashioned you know, external shock that is humongous by historical standards, uh, you have this problem of the lockdowns. And that's uh, something completely novel. By the way, the, the lockdowns affect you know, a huge proportion of the population. The disease affects a small fraction of the population. So the political consequences are going to be more related to sort of like the dislocations associated with the lockdown than with the disease burden itself, right? So, for example, in, in most of the countries I'm, I'm working on, you know, I'm working out of Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a state of 6.8 million people that has over 7,000 deaths, okay? In most of the other places in the world, except for Brazil now, they're in a completely different ballgame. They have a fifth, a tenth, a fiftieth of the numbers of deaths per capita than, than you see in the state of Massachusetts. So, so the disease burden is not that big, but they're on the lockdown. And that means everybody has had their lives disrupted in one way or another. In some countries, this has strengthened the government because there's a perception that the government is taking care of people. That has improved the standing of the government, the popularity of the government, the confidence in the government. And in other countries, it's decimating the confidence on the government. So I think that there will be very differential effects. In some, some countries, you know, social cohesion, whatever, they feel that they have somehow succeeded and got on top of the disease. In other countries, I think, you know, the situation may lead to a lot of political turmoil. Um, now, all of these problems would be much, much easier to manage if the government could compensate people as they try to keep them under lockdown and as they try to help um, a, a firms not go broke. In the same way as the U.S. has just spent $3 trillion and the expectation that is that it, they will spend you know, an extra trillion and a half at least in the remainder of the year, as they bail out first, uh, you know, households that got uh, unemployed firms uh, to try to convince them not to fire workers, um, uh, banks, uh, you know, um, um, bond bondholders, um, um, mortgage holders, uh, and now you know, states and local governments. So, so those pressures on the U.S. system to come out and bail out these people vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, social distancing and lockdowns, well, those pressures are the same in other countries, except they don't have the funding. They don't have the financing. So it's a lockdown without the check, right? It's, um, it's uh, companies that they say are affected by the shutdown of air, air travel and, you know, don't have, you know, a line of credit that, that they can use or or some other bailout in, that the government might, might provide. So, so the same shock, becomes so much harder to, to uh, withstand. And for that reason, it makes sense, you know, the government is hurting and needs more money. Households are hurting and need more money. Firms are hurting and need more money. Well, if everybody in the country needs more money, they cannot borrow from each other. They, they all are on the, in the credit market asking for loans. So the only way this can add up is if they can borrow from the rest of the world.
And, you know, the, the prime organization that can facilitate that is the International Monetary Fund. This crisis has shown that from the point of view of additional money that they can put on the table, the International Monetary Fund is something like 70 times larger than the World Bank. So it means that from the point of view of managing this crisis, forget about the World Bank. These are, you know, small potatoes. The real only game in town is the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Gregorieva, uh, Georgieva, the, the managing director, said that it has a trillion dollars to lend, of which it has already lent probably a little bit over 200 billion. And now it is bumping against some constraints. And some of those constraints are rules, rules that they invented, uh, you know, in, in the pre-COVID world for pre-COVID crises. And now they're facing a crisis that is, you know, an order of magnitude bigger than what they've ever seen. Now, they were created in 1944. Well, this is bigger than anything that has happened since 1944. Uh, so, uh, and it's more global than any previous crisis that, that they've ever had to face with because the European crisis was in Europe, the East Asian crisis was in East Asia, uh, you know, the Russian crisis was in Russia, right? So, but this is global. Uh, and, and as a consequence, you know, it's of orders of magnitude that they haven't seen and it's deeper in each country than what they, they are, have traditionally seen. So, so they need to change the rules, but, uh, you know, they, they cannot agree to change the rules. So the way that they are behaving is that they know there's a storm coming. Uh, it looks increasingly like a ca Category 5 hurricane, uh, but they are sort of like planning for a tropical storm. Uh, and uh, and they, they, they are not, they should be preparing for the Category 5 hurricane, uh, but they're not, they're dragging their feet in important ways that can exacerbate and create more serious problems going forward. Okay, so we have about 15 minutes to go, and, I, and I'd like to get around to everybody. Um, uh, Ed, listening to this, um, one thinks, well, that's a problem that the world should get together to solve, but the world doesn't get together to solve problems anymore. Ricardo made a mention to the G question mark, um, I, I suppose if one had a not terribly sophisticated mind and saw the failure of leadership here, you might say, well, it's a G0 now, but I consider that a very unsophisticated concept. Uh, uh, perhaps you might consider it um, a G question mark or, or fill in a different number because there is leadership regionally. There are different kinds of leadership. It's not the kind of leadership we're used to. But it doesn't seem like the U.S. is going to do anything constructive, and it doesn't seem like the U.S. and the Chinese can get together to agree on anything constructive. Uh, and so it seems like this Category 5 hurricane is just going to blow right into town with the international system unable to stop it. Is that your assessment, Ed? It is. I mean, there have been modest attempts at debt forgiveness through Paris Club, etc., which have been um, stymied to one degree or another by um, Secretary Mnuchin speaking on behalf of the Trump administration. So there is, there is opposition there to anything generous. As Corey pointed out, though, you know, most of the current debt is um, actually owed to China. And so China 
you know, is, is the much bigger game in town in terms of bilateral forgivenesses. Um, but the real, the, real, um, the real issue is the one Ricardo identified, which is the IMF's constraints. And I don't think it's just the United States to blame. I think countries like Germany and Britain are pretty conservative. Um, and then the whole issue of reforming the equity at the IMF and giving China and, of course, India and, and some other developing countries a, more, a weighting more in, in, um, that, that better reflects their size is bound up with changing, any changing rules. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely rule out there being um, you know, a, a big shift and a dramatic expansion in the IMF's balance sheet. Um, I, I mean, I think Ricardo would be better able to speak to that. But if it happens, it's not going to come um, at the behest of the United States, and it's probably not going to come at the behest of the European shareholders. Um, uh, and therefore, others are going to have to drive this. And I think China has demonstrated very clearly in the last decade or so, it prefers to act bilaterally. It has set up its own um, various parallel organizations like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, like the BRICS Bank, like the Silk, um, the Silk Road, the Belt and Belt and Road Initiative. And I suspect China is, is going to exploit this vacuum by aggressively um, stepping up its bilateralization um, of, of, of global finance, which, you know, gets back into the what sort of G world are we in? Well, I think right now, um, and I, I know this is sort of gimmicky and faddish, but I think I'd say, I can't remember who said it, but um, I did pick up on the G minus two world because the United States and China need to be, if anything significant, of a global multilateral nature is going to happen. The US and China most of the time have to be cooperating or vaguely on the same page. And I see zero chance of that happening. Um, so therefore the probability has got to be that this category five storm is going to be tearing through the emerging, the emerging economies without anywhere near sufficient support um, that, that, that they need. And, and we will pay the price for it in terms of refugees, in terms of um, more fuel for Western populism and um, uh, greater difficulties in our systems of governance. Well, that, that you know, raises a good point. And as I go to Corey and, and Rosie, you might want to sort of keep it, keep it in, in, in mind. Uh, and that is, I do see that a major meltdown in the Western Hemisphere could produce refugee flows that Trump could demagogue in the run-up to the election. It seems really unlikely that Trump is going to step up and fill this global leadership void. Uh, Corey, you had a piece in The Atlantic entitled Biden's Bad Foreign Policy Ideas, um, which ran the other day. And I encourage everybody to read it because it's a very thoughtful piece uh, and and regardless of what party you may be in, it's the kind of thing that really, you know, wisely informs the debate. I, it looks to me like this is all going to be left up to Biden. You know, it, 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 granted, this is a big crisis between now and January, but the question is, do you feel that, you know, come January, if, if Biden, you know, uh, manages to win, we'll see a major change in the way the United States behaves on these things? 
Um, so in my judgment, Vice President Biden would unquestionably be a better foreign policy president than Donald Trump is. What I was trying to do in the Atlantic piece was point out that in some areas, like on international trade or on the war in Afghanistan, it's hard to distinguish some of President Trump's policies from some of Secretary Biden's positions. And I was encouraging Vice President Biden and the campaign to clarify those distinctions um, in the course of the campaign while they still have time and, and it, but unquestionably, Vice President Biden would not be, as president, would not be destructive to American foreign policy in the way President Trump has been. So I just want to be clear that um, I think Biden will be a lot better. I just want him to think about some places where I think the policies aren't as solid um, and he's not getting as much attention because we're all going to be so relieved if American foreign policy isn't willfully wrecking the liberal international order. Um, Okay, well, Rosa, it does suggest that, you know, the only predictable Trump response to this is to send more troops to the border, right? We've, we've been defunding programs in this part of the world for a while. Um, isolating ourselves from these problems seems like a likely uh, response. Seems unlikely to me that that's going to work. Um, am I misreading what they're likely to do in your mind? No, not at all. I mean, uh, the Trump administration is certainly not going to do anything useful. Um, the only question is, as I said, is whether they're simply absent or whether they're actively being destructive by, you know, continuing to cause mischief, continuing to pull out of more international agreements, continuing to fan the flames by, you know, closing down borders in a way that is completely disconnected from actual public health threats or security threats and is motivated more by a desire to play to Trump's base. Um, I don't know, 50-50. Uh, depends what else is happening and whether he thinks there's some political advantage in, in causing mayhem and mischief. Um, I'm, I'm, I would be kinder to Mark Biden's foreign policy uh, platform or track record than, than Corey is, I think, um, for, for two reasons. One being that I think his role in the Obama administration was actually a lot better than he gets credit for, which is to say that he did what vice presidents, in a sense, have the have the luxury of doing, which is that he played often the gadfly and he raised ideas and proposals that that yeah, often were really problematic, but but in a in a in a context where, frankly, I think the biggest thing that most administrations struggle with Trump's a special case in every possible way, so forget that, uh, is, is getting into a bubble where everybody agrees with one another, that he often played the role of saying, wait a minute, what about that? Well, wait a minute, what if instead of more troops in Afghanistan, we have fewer, or we did a counterterrorism approach? Wait a minute, what if instead of trying this in Iraq, we subdivided it into different uh, ethnic, ethno-religious uh, organizations and so on? And I actually think that that kind of intervention those may have been bad ideas on some level, but even articulating some ideas that are bad ideas sometimes forces people with better ideas to try to defend them. And frankly, it's not particularly obvious to me that the approach the Obama administration took on many of these issues was all that much better than the ideas that Biden was putting out. But I, but I actually think that 
in an administration where all too often everybody agreed with each other that there was a bit of a, a blob to use uh, uh, everybody's favorite commentator Ben Rhodes's term. Um, and the blob often won, the blob often ate even the critics of the blob, that having somebody there who said, that doesn't make any sense to me, how about this crazy thing, was really important and, we, and it's something that we need more of. I actually worry most in some ways that Biden as president won't be as uh, cantankerous and ornery and full of questions and full of crazy ideas as Biden as vice president was, because I think the instinct becomes let's play it safe rather than trying to carve out something that is bold and different. Let's just go back to, Hey, everybody loved Barack Obama. Let's sort of do what he did only kind of more. Um, and I don't, I don't actually think that is the right approach. Um, um, so anyway, that, that's a, that's a longer conversation and a different conversation um, but I think that Biden probably doesn't get enough credit for being willing to ask hard questions and being willing to listen and take to and take seriously a more diverse range of answers. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, I would love to ask all of you, and I don't know if we have time, but I particularly love uh, for Ricardo, um, if you were giving Joe Biden advice on the issues we've been discussing today, and if Joe Biden said, gee, Ricardo, what should I do on January 20th or 21st or whatever, whatever that day is? If, if I should be fortunate enough to, to take the oath of office, um, what should I be doing in my first month on these, these issues specifically? I would love to know sort of what advice you and, and open for all the rest of you too would be giving him, recognizing that the U.S. is only one actor here, but but at least from the perspective of those of us sitting here, what 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 is the agenda for month one? I think that's a great question, and I'd love to hear everybody's answer to it. We've got about five six minutes left, so if everybody could keep the answer to a minute or a minute and a half, I know that's tough, but that's the nature of the beast here. Ricardo, over to you first. Okay, well, I think it's a great question. Um, I think that there are two possible if, if Biden wins, it may be because there was a debate on whether. You know, America first versus, you know, America, the global leader. And uh, that there's, you know, that the problems of the world, be it COVID, global warming and so on, are global in nature. It, without U.S. leadership, it, the world doesn't work. That's why we got into this big mess. Uh, we want to strengthen the World Health Organization, not weaken it. We want to have a commitment that the world is going to have an accessible vaccine, not that America first for the vaccine and let everybody else die. So there are plenty of things that can gain, earn the U.S. enormous soft power. It doesn't cost the U.S. any budgetary allocations to have a, a, an IMF that is more activist in terms of assuring that countries have the needed uh, funding and so on. So I think right now, it is very, very cheap for the U.S. world standing to increase dramatically by doing things that are very valuable for the world and that China is doing them. So China is doing the debt forgiveness. China is sending the PPEs and the testing and the stuff. They're trying to, to be helpful to countries as they cope with this. The U.S. is kind of missing in action. So I think that a change in in November, if Biden wins, it means that there's something that the U.S. has decided no, I tried that. It didn't work. Maybe I want a more an agenda where the U.S. does provide global leadership. Ed? 
I think Ricardo just made a really important point, which is America restoring its global leadership in an effective way is cheap. It really doesn't cost that much money. It's a very important point because there's a lot of misconception in public opinion that um, USAID's budget, you know, is like a quarter of total spending when it's like 1% of total spending. Um, rejoining the WHO, I think, would be a very important sort of first week gesture or first 24 hours um, gesture. Um, I think um, a statement in opposition to vaccine nationalism and in favor of global collaboration and of the common um, the common um, problem we all face, um, needing a common solution would be another. But I think first and foremost, in addition to not being Trump, which of course Biden would automatically qualify as, um, is having very, very good appointments. You know, we, we, we probably underestimate the response most of the world would give to somebody other than Mike Pompeo being across the table or at least across the Zoom um, screen um, uh, and to somebody um, um, competent in charge of the Pentagon um, and to having decent, um, experienced, internationally-minded people surrounding um, Biden. And all of these things cost nothing and take you quite a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, there's one thing about the Democratic Party is we have binders full of multilateralists um, <laughs> as opposed to perhaps the Republican Party. Corey, what's your answer for that? Um, my advice uh, to uh, the leader in January would be that more globalization is necessary to prevent the kinds of problems that we're seeing, that... Um, we shouldn't, no country should have a monopoly of production and supply chains, not even us. Um, and that, um, that thinking seriously and investing in building more international institutions and diversifying the ones that exist, uh, that the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership is a really good example about how to strengthen the international order by advancing globalization rather than by pulling in your branches and roots and renationalizing. That it's strategic depth, and we should think of it as hard national security to improve globalization. You know, I look forward to the day, by the way, when this show is available in video to whoever wants it on YouTube, which we hopefully will be fairly fairly soon. Um, we we do it in bits and pieces because when um, Rosa was taking issue with Corey's article. Corey was nodding to what Rosa said. And when uh, uh, vice versa took place, Rosa was just nodding to what Corey said. In other words, there's a lot of subtlety to the views here, and it's, it's useful to see as well as to hear them. Uh, Rosa, you framed this question. Uh, do you have any additional advice you would offer to the vice president? No, I think that that's, I think we've gotten excellent advice already. I mean, one of the, the only other additional thing I would add, and, and, and maybe this seems like inside baseball, but, but I don't actually think it is, 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 is a, you know, I certainly hope that, that Biden, if elected, will not simply replicate the leadership uh, team uh, that was there in the Obama administration, and again, I, I think I think there's going to be a real a real tension between feeling like 
wow, the U.S. and the world are in crisis. This is not the moment to experiment and rock any boats. This is the moment to get the seasoned old hands in, into position. Um, and then we can, you know, diversify and be more interesting and creative later once we kind of stabilize. I think, I think there will be a really strong temptation to do that. And then I think we'll see a bunch of people in positions that they've already been in or, or very similar to, and we're going to end up seeing a set of policies that look very similar to what we saw in the Obama administration. I think that would be a mistake. I think obviously some of those seasoned old hands um, are, are fantastic and absolutely should have places in an Obama, in, in a new Biden administration. But I also think that there's a tremendous opportunity for a Biden administration to bring in a new slate of players, both a new generation um, and also a far more diverse group in every possible way, gender, race, uh, background, experience. And, and I think that I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that in his, his early moves uh, uh, in his campaign, that the vice president does seem to have a really a deep awareness of how important it is not to just have the same faces all the time and to bring in new people. And I, I really hope that that continues to be the case if he takes office. I think that for for a very long time, the political leadership, particularly on the foreign policy side, has tended to see diversity as at best a burden and at worst a threat. Um, and I actually think, and we've talked about this in other contexts, it, it's a gift and, and the diversity of backgrounds, genders, races, ethnicities, religions, experiences, you know, that's our greatest strength. And we are far more likely to be a good global citizen as a nation if our own leadership looks more like both our nation and the world, and it, it can. So I, I really hope that we will see that. Yeah, by the way, that has got me almost up to the point of fulfilling my desire to become a kind of a televangelist preacher and saying, may we have an amen from the audience. Amen. Here. Amen. amen. <laughs> um, uh, or perhaps, perhaps just to ask everybody who's listening, uh, once this uh, episode is over, to bow your head in prayer and hope that this is realized. Because I think the takeaway that I've got from all of this, and I don't want to lose this point, uh, from the points that Ricardo made at the very beginning, is this is not your mother or father's global economic crisis. This is a different one. It's very different in its scope. It's very different in the kinds of challenges it poses. It's very different in terms of the geopolitical leaders who are involved in it. It's very different in terms of the resources it demands and the resources that may be available to it. It requires new thinking. New thinking requires new people, um, new ideas, and hopefully we will be able to bring those to bear even in areas like this where for you know, 20 odd years, it seems like we've been bringing the same team to the table. So excellent point, excellent point to everybody. Uh, may I encourage everybody who's interested in more of what Ricardo and his team at the uh, Growth Lab at Harvard are doing to go to the website. You also have a, you also have a podcast too, competing with us. What, what is the name of your podcast there? Um, it's the Kennedy School podcast. It it has an interesting name, but I forget it right now. <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah, well, probably Policy just as, probably just as. What is it called? Policy. Policy. 
Yeah, well, it's and it's had some good guests, I noted, and uh, I encourage people to listen to it. Uh, uh, of course, uh, I encourage you to go read Corey's article. She's even had one in the interim, miraculously enough. She is prolifically producing there. Go listen to Rosa on the Bill Maher Show. Obviously, Ed has articles regularly, although I didn't see one today. Do you have one coming up soon? Yes, in a day or two. Um, And it will be about just what we discussed here, presumably. Yeah, it'll be a transcription (laughs) under my byline. <laughs> that's why that's that's why we're here. Um, and for those of us, you know, for those of you who've been here for a while, when uh, you heard a reference earlier to the blob, it just I had to flash back to the earliest days of us doing a podcast when um, Ed and Rosa and Corey and I were doing it at Foreign Policy, which was like five years ago, and we felt like we were blob-free radio. We were the voice of the blob. Um, uh, uh, speaking uh, and and sometimes offering similar critiques of uh, in the Obama years, uh, we're just coming up on the third anniversary of doing Deep State Radio, and I hope that next week, ideally, um, uh, we will get all the original regulars together on one podcast to look back on the past three years and congratulate ourselves on what a great job we've done or something like that. Alternatively, we could do like the guys on Car Talk did and um, revisit advice we gave that was wrong. <laughs> oh, I don't know if we have time for that. But <laughs> we, 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 we can try that, and anything that Car Talk did is, is what we aspire to. So thank you, Ricardo. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, everybody, for listening. For more about us and what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. On Wednesday, we're doing a, a one-on-one podcast as part of the Agenda 2021 series uh, with uh, uh, Jason Furman, uh, f- former Obama economic official. Uh, Ed, I think, is joining us for that. I think he consented to do that. And on Thursday, we are doing one uh, with Brett McGurk, the former... Uh, great. Su- yeah, great and courageous um, uh, advisor to the Trump administration who stepped off and has been providing wise advice ever since. So we got a lot of good stuff coming this week. Please join us for that. Thank you very much, everybody. Uh, Stay healthy.